This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. everyone and welcome back to another episode of east screen west screen it is wednesday september 8th 2010 and this is episode 41 i am paul fox and joining me from somewhere in the fragrant harbor is the man known as kevin ma hello everybody how's it going kevin uh pretty well paul how about you uh you know start of this new semester really busy uh really behind i only recently got our last episode posted up because I've been uh, busy doing preparation and stuff, but hopefully I'll get back into the groove of things and I'll get a rhythm down so there won't be such a big delay between the times we record these and I actually get a chance to edit them and post them up for people to listen to. Um, yeah, I want to send a big thank you to all the people who's, uh, who've uh, congratulated us so far. Um, yeah, we got some really nice messages from uh, from some of the regulars. Um uh, Matt and Gary and uh, David um, left some really nice comments for us over on the website. We really appreciate that. And to everybody else out there listening, um, we hope that you'll keep enjoying these shows. I guess this technically starts our second season if we were doing this in you know U.S. TV terms. Um, but we hope to have a lot more things to come and some newer segments over the next coming year and more guests and... Uh, yeah, we just uh, hope to keep going strong. But we do appreciate the listeners and uh, all the support that you guys give us as well. Well, be careful, Paul, because uh, in Heroes World, Season 2 when it start going to hell. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> season 1 is excellent. Season 2, not so much. Uh, well, we, we are not here to talk about heroes. We are here to talk about movies. This is the show where we talk about films from... Hong Kong to Hollywood, and lots of stuff in between. But before we get to our films this week, and we've got a few to cover, let's get into a little bit of news. All right, so our first news item this week. Um, director Jan DeBont is going to be taking over the new English-language Mulan film. Uh, this bit of news coming from Film Biz Asia. Um, says he's going to be working on the English language version of Mulan that's going to be starring Zhang Ziyi. Uh, the film's going to be shooting in Hengdian Studios in China from mid-November, and it's sold overseas by Arclight Films. So this was apparently previously to be directed by Ch uh, Chick Russell, um, but now Mr. DeBont is going to be taking over. What do you think about this, Kevin? Exciting um, news or... 
Well, I've known about this project uh, for a while because it was earlier reported in Apple Daily that this was this was going to be a Disney production with uh, Zhang Zi and Lee Hong Wang, and I believe Chuck Russell was the name in that report as well. But um, you know, I've been kind of going back and forth with my with my sources um, about about who, and he, you know, he knows everything, but he wouldn't tell me anything. So it's kind of been a back and forth about who's directing it, all the information about this. But now, it's, you know, it's finally out here, out there. Um, I'm a little surprised that Jan Debont is. Um, you know, Jan Debont has, has experience shooting in, I guess, Asia because he shot parts of Tomb Raider two in Hong Kong. Um, he's made much better films before, like Speed and uh, even to an extent Twister, but um, he hasn't made a film since 2003 after, I think, Tomb Raider 2. So I'm not really quite excited about the director of Speed 2 Cruise Control and uh, Tomb Raider 2 taking um, an English-language version of Mulan um, invested by uh, Western companies, you know, and with Zhang Ji trying to speak English, it's just the whole formula doesn't really quite work for me. And you know, most interesting thing, thing is if you look at the um, American distributor, it's not a typical studio or it's not a typical um, distribution company. It's a it's a talent agency. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. That's something that me and both me and my sources are we're both quite uh, intrigued by. But um, as far as the project is concerned, um, there was rumor that it's going to be in 3D, but there's nothing about it in the report or in the reports that I've read. I could try and confirm this with my source whether it's going to be in 3D, but um, the 3D thing would have made it worse. Um, either way, I don't, I don't see much really commercial commercial uh, potential for this movie because, I mean, after all, the Chinese Mulan flopped uh, in both China and Hong Kong, so I don't know if people are ready for another version of Mulan just, you know, I mean, less than a year after the the last Chinese language version version of it. Yeah, and, and I think we've talked a little bit before about the reception of the Disney animated Mulan um, in Asia. It, there was a lot of criticism thrown at that, so I'm wondering if there'll be similar criticisms labeled against this as sort of an English language rendition. Um, the thing that does concern me, though, about... Um, Mr. Director DeBont's selection, he's really only got five films as a director. Most of his work is as a cinematographer, but Mm -hmm. uh, that only goes up to 1992. I mean, he's got some interesting uh, cinematography credits, you know, Lethal Weapon 3, uh, The Hunt for Red October, Black Rain, Die Hard. So I'm imagining that this film visually will be something very nice to look at, which was one of my criticisms about the last Mulan film, is that it was so sort of washed out and um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that interesting from a, a, a cinematographer's point of view. Um, so maybe there will be something to look forward to, but I, I, I'm with you on this. I'm still a little bit worried about um, you know, what, what kind of direction he'll bring to this title. I think he's a perfectly um, capable commercial director. Um, like I said, I, I, Speed is a classic, and uh, Twister was fine. It's one of those uh, you know, big-budget disaster films. But once it got to Speed 2 and uh, The Haunting, I remember seeing it, but I don't remember much of it. And um, Tomb Raider 2 was better yeah, than the first it's, movie. It's but pretty much a much. downhill, I mean, starting from Speed and then you know, kind of working its way down. Um, it's definitely a very technical, very, uh, 
cap- capable technical director, but uh, yeah, uh, as far as quality goes, I don't know. Yeah, and again, he hasn't really done anything of note, at least according to IMDb, um, for seven years. So I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe he'll do this well, but maybe he's, you know, gonna need some time to get up to speed with some things, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> Bad joke. <laughs> oh. Okay. All right, uh, our next story, um, talking about Beijing screenings. Um, Beijing screenings is going on, and they're having, they actually had a cash prize award for films with the biggest impact um, overseas. So this is a part of a news story talking about the 14th Beijing screenings event coming from Film Biz Asia. And it mentions that the producers of 10 Chinese films with the most impact overseas were each presented with an RMB uh, $10,000 or $15,000 in cash prizes. Uh, the films included Red Cliff, Founding of a Republic, Forever Enthralled, Mulan, and not the coming one, but the one we just ta- uh, talked about back in December, um, The Message, City of Life and Death, The First of August, If You Are the One, Sophie's Revenge, and Weaving Girl. Now, I've seen a majority of these films, and the thing that struck me about this this news article, the reason I wanted to grab this segment from this story, was how do you determine an award like most impact overseas? I mean, how do you gauge that? How do you measure measure that? Were they having, you know, um, exams, you know, at the end? Like, uh, how much Chinese history did you learn? How much Chinese culture <laughs> did you learn at the end of each film? I mean, that seems like a very sort of arbitrary thing to grant an award to. Um, And then here you have the producers winning $15,000, but I'm wondering if some of these films were flops financially, what the people who were actually investing in the film are thinking about, you know. Um, If here the producers are getting a nice cash prize and then the investors may have have lost money on some of these films. Um, What do you think about this, Kev? Well, as far as I know, or, or according to what I know about Chinese cinema, um, what what determines impact overseas, quote unquote, is uh, well how well the producers know the people in Sarft. That's what it sounds like. Mm. Um, you know, look at look at Founder Republic. You know, government giving a movie about the founding of a country an award. Of course, uh, you got you know forever in thought about about an opera singer who refuses to sing for the Japanese, you know, uh, or you got you know Mulan, which uh, I guess the Mulan story has represented China quite a bit. Although I wouldn't want that film to represent Chinese cinema, um, you know, State of Life and Death, you know, which was you know again approved by the government and again a, a history film. Um, you know, first of August. Um, I believe the most patriotic film studio uh, in China is called the August First Studio. You know, that that means something. Um, so I mean, these 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 names. None of these names are really surprised. Um, you know, some of it is because of the the agenda of the film. Some of it is because of the content. Some of it is because you know the producers happen to be very close to Sarft. Um, so. The thing is, I could never take these, you know, award seriously. It's hard for me to take a Chinese award seriously. No offense to the people who work the people who, who work really hard in Chinese cinema, but um, again, some of these awards they don't really they don't really work very hard to justify themselves as uh, independent, you know, uh, award that is worth 
pay attention to. Right. Well, I mean, I, as I look at the at this list, I mean, founding of a republic sticks out like a sore thumb. I mean, if there's an mm-hmm. award to be won, that film's going to win it simply because of the nature of the content in that film. It's not a great film, as we've already talked about, but it is it is interesting, especially for people who like uh, history or revision of some aspects of history. Um, but we, you look at, say, Founding of a Republic, Red Cliff, Forever Enthralled, um, perhaps Mulan, perhaps The Message, uh, City of Life and Death, and all of those, you know, I could see those as, as you know, sort of carrying messages of, you know, Chinese history or Chinese mythology or, uh, you know, aspects of China overseas. And so you could argue that in doing so, they deserve uh, the award. But when I look at If You Are the One and Sophie's Revenge, I'm like, those seem totally in a different class. Not that they're bad films. I mean, If You Are the One was one of my favorite films of last year. Uh, Sophie's Revenge we talked about. I mean, uh, we were kind of split on it. I, I was a sucker for it because it's a sappy romantic comedy. But it is simply that. It's a sappy romantic comedy. It's not really delivering any kind of a message with regard to Chinese culture or history or anything like that. It it's, could have been a plot simply ripped out of a sitcom like Friends. Um, so it the the list just seems kind of weird to me, and, and it d- does make me wonder if it's simply something based on who people know and who's friends with whom. All right, our third story for East Screen this week that we'll talk about, um, this coming from, also from Filmbiz Asia, was making headlines in a lot of other news journals as well with regard to film, and that is... Uh, director John Woo has received the Venice Award for Lifetime Achievement in the past Friday. And previously, the award has gone to big people like Orson Welles, Ingmar Bergman, um, Akira Kurosawa, uh, Fellini, Coppola, Spielberg, just to name a few. Um, and so this he is the first Chinese person to uh, win this award. And we've recently talked about his upcoming film, The Flying Tigers, uh, that's scheduled to be next. Kevin, is this uh, good news? What do you think about this? Oh, no. John Woo is a great director. I think despite, you know, he's made certain crappy films, uh, <coughs> wind talkers, um, you know, it's nothing to, he's definitely achieved quite a bit. Um, the biggest story here is rather who is handing him the award. Uh, you look at the picture in the Filmbiz Asia story. It's uh, Tarantino, uh, Marco Mueller, who uh, is the festival director, and uh, Trey Hark. Uh, the big story here is because Trey Hark and John Woo had a huge falling out, I believe, during the making of uh, Bear Tomorrow 2, or um, I think one of the films in the 80s, because um, Trey Hark, actually, his company produced uh, some of Wu's biggest films, and they had a huge falling out, and it's been it's been a very um, it's been a kind of damaged relationship between the two uh, in the last two decades. So this is a very very huge deal for anyone who has followed um, Hong Kong cinema history that Trey Hark is kind of um, is handing him this award, a sign that this feud is over. Um, of course, I don't know what Trey Hark is thinking, you know, whether he's thinking that I used to be your boss, but now you're getting the Life Achievement Award, so I'm pissed kind of thing. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if he thinks that. But uh, again, for for Hong Kong Hong Kong film history fans, uh, Hong Kong history buff, this is a really huge deal. Uh, not only because you know John Woo getting this award as the first Chinese man, but again, there's a sign of the Trey Hark and John Woo feud as officially over. Um, I don't know if this will mean that the two will work again or anything, but um, you know, at least it's nice to get closure on this 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 bit of history in Hong Kong cinema. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is great news. I love John Woo's work, particularly the stuff, I mean, his Hong Kong stuff. Um, I, I did like things like Hard Target and, and Face Off and uh, Mission Impossible 2, was it? 2 or 3? Mm-hmm. Which one did two, you do? 2, two yeah. 2. Um, you know, I enjoyed that, but for me, John Woo films are always going to be the stuff that he did in his early years in Hong Kong. Um but the, I have a problem with Lifetime Achievement Awards being given to people who are nowhere near the end of their lifetime. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's, I'm not saying he's not deserving of that, because I, I think he is. It's just that, for me, when you say Lifetime Achievement Award, it should be given to somebody who's, like, stopped working. Right. Know? Because right. it's like, you know, he's as directors go, still kind of young. I mean, he's probably got a good 20, 30 movies left in him if he, you know, keeps working at a a decent pace. Um, So to give him this award now, I just think it's kind of too, I don't know. It's Again, I'm I'm not saying this, that he doesn't deserve it. I don't want to take anything away from him. It's just, I think that if I were on a committee... And I, they were, you know, they were gonna say, well, what do you think should be the stipulations for a lifetime achievement award? I'd say they gotta be retired, they gotta be mm-hmm. done making films, you know, and because otherwise you're not taking into account all the stuff to come, you know. It's just so it's like ha- oh. half of a lifetime achievement. I, I think they might have been thinking like you, Paul, that they they considered, you know, John Woo's best films are his Hong Kong Cantonese stuff and the fact that he's no longer making Cantonese films and will probably never make another Cantonese film kind of oh don't tell me that Uh, I still have I still have my hopes up let's face it it's like Charon Fat neither of them are ever gonna make another Cantonese films again a film again and they will never work with each other again just to I guess keep us you know just tease us you know they'll never work in Cantonese again they'll never work with each other again and in that way this Life Achievement Award is like a recognition that hey you once made great films and you know It'd be great if we keep continuing to do it, but I think, you know, a Hong Kong films were your best films. You know, and, and if that's the attitude they go with, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Okay, let's move on to our East Screen films for this week. This week we've got two films. First up is the film by Kenneth B. called Girls. So, Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about this film? Yeah, um, sure. Kenneth B., a little disclosure. Um, Kenneth B. was my um, script writing instructor for two semesters at uh, my film school. I've also worked... Oh, I didn't read. We've also discussed several things briefly. Uh, We we also know each other. Uh, He's the one who brought me to the set of um, Dream Home. So we were actually acquaintances, uh, or we could say, you know, maybe even friends. Um, in that case, uh, Girls is his third film. He hasn't done a film since The Drummer. And um, 
I, for one, I'm glad to see him trying or working again. Um, but of course, again, full disclosure is that I wasn't a fan of his films. Um, so, Girls uh, is marks his first director director for higher work because uh, the first two films are his own production. This is the first time working under another producer. Uh, in this case, I believe it's Eun Kin Hong, who also um, who is very much into working with these uh, topical, uh, small budget, low budget Hong Kong. Uh, films, so uh, girls covers the world of angel kosai, which is uh, essentially the word uh, compensated dating, uh, which means um, it is a term that comes from Japan. Uh, angel kosai itself is Japanese, um, something that kind of describes these young girls. Um, doesn't have to be eighteen, I believe. Uh, they they essentially. Um, work in prostitution, but it's not your traditional form of prostitution, kind of like uh, they go on dates. It can range from going on dates or just having a meal or going out together, and of course it can also range to sex. Um, so this is what, and it's been in the headlines quite a bit lately uh, because of certain several incidents, including one uh, involving one of these Angel Kosai girls um, getting murdered by one of her clients and uh, her body parts were, uh, let's say, disposed of in a la- less than hygienic uh, way. So that has been on the, it's been on the headlines for quite a, quite a while. And um, so Kenneth B. was brought in to make this film. And the script was written by four people. And I believe uh, Kenneth also does an uncredited work on the script. It covers, it tries to cover everything um, under its topic. So it follows these four girls, each of them with their own personality. Um, one is played by Michelle Y, who uh, I believe we last saw in Hot Summer Days. Um, you can comment me later, Paul, if, if I'm wrong. Uh, also, Bonnie Shen, uh, who I remember from uh, The Moss, um, who plays a rich girl who, who, is, who, is in, who becomes involved in Injo Kosai, not for money, but for kind of her own personal reasons. Um, you also have a young actress, uh, Venus Wong, who plays a high school girl who is uh, contemplating entering the world and you also got a, a Taiwanese actress named Una Lin um, who who is who kind of falls in love with her client um, again it covers a lot of the current trends uh, the serial murderers there this, this, you got the sadistic John you got the um, people with different fetishes you got the, um, the falling of the client cliche um, and you know, it try covers a lot of things. And uh, in that case, you got a real, really choppy and really episodic story. Um, you know, the film is perfectly entertaining, but it kind of stops and start. It, it, the the beginning half hour, which sets up how these four girls become friends, it kind of goes through really quickly. And then, and then they they hit one one trouble after another, one one challenges after another, but then none of it really kind of ties up to uh, how can I say, like a, like a beginning and an end, you know? It doesn't really have a progression. It just kind of, they hit one place after another. Um, the, film is a very, the film is very entertaining. You know, these some of these, um, there are some very good moments um, in both the directing and the script writing, um, and the actresses are great. They all really kind of break through their previous, I guess, images. You got um, Michelle Y and Bonnie Chen, you know, doing sex scenes. Uh, Una Lin, who is the only um, actresses among among the four to to do any nudity, real nudity, um, steals the show, I guess, because of 
you know how much she she sacrifice how much she puts into her performance. Uh, Venus Wong, uh, her I think I think she, she she might still be underage, so it makes sense for her to not do the sex scene. Um, anyway, these four actors all really make their own impression, and they all manage to become their own character. I believe that's thanks to both. Um, Kenneth's work and also you know the script and also their performances and they're really great in the film, um, and I think that it should be a credit to these both all three of these units. Um, now back to the disclosure part. Um, I was actually in uh, Kenneth's scriptwriting class the semester before he was offered the film. Um, I believe it was when the the topic was um, at the top of really in uh, on the headlines. And um, Angel Kosai was the topic for the whole semester. Uh, so it was very interesting for me to have worked on this topic whole semester and then find your own scriptwriting teacher working on a, a topic like this. Um, he he um, also, I was actually also on set as an extra for a night. Uh, we did several shots. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I was ever in it. It was probably just my back or my foot or something, but I didn't make it, I, I didn't make it into the film. Um, so with that disclosure, I will, you know, my complete honest view of the film is that I think it was entertaining. I think it's Kenneth's best film, but, um, it's, it's really a relative term because I didn't like Kenneth's first two films. And I'm glad that the, the biggest problem that dragged those two films down, which is a bit too much pretension and too much aim for meaning that really isn't in the film, partly because um, Kenneth w- was working as a director for hire on the film. So it's a really entertaining film. It feels like a local film. Uh, feels like it's a film that's made by a Hong Kong filmmaker. And, you know, I give, I always give a little extra credit for a film that does that. So even despite weaknesses, I would say Girls is a film definitely um, worth watching if you can take the subject matter. I think it's a very risky film, but uh, I liked it a lot for what it is. Yeah, now... Just, just to clarify, you weren't uh, body double, right? Oh no, no, no! I, I, I can assure you, all my shots were. Because that's outdoors. one of my pet peeves, which I'll get to with this film in a minute. Um, I really like this film for what it what it was, and you know, you could tell there wasn't a really huge budget uh, applied to the film. But I think that with what the girls were doing and what the director was doing with what they had, it, it was entertaining. Now, that being said, I'm not a huge fan of this kind of a genre. Um, and, and this genre has been done again and again and again. It's like every decade a new variation comes up. So if you go back to some of the Hong Kong films of the 80s, um, the one, one of my favorites is called uh, Girls Without Tomorrow. Uh, and I think uh, Maggie Chung actually stars in that. And it's, you know, about women you know, from different walks of life who are treated badly by men. Um, and, you know, some of them are having sex for money, this kind of a thing. In the 90s, it was the the PR girls concept, and there's an actual film called PR Girls. And I think that uh, Kozo over on lovehongkongfilm.com had referenced that film as well. And it's the same, it's the same kind of notion. In the 90s, it was the girls were hostesses in PR clubs, and, you know, they're, they're, they're quote-unquote not prostitutes, but they can be kind of a thing. Um, in the new millennium, it's this notion of Enjo Kosai, which has uh, been sort of shipped over from Japan via Taiwan. And this has been, you know, Enjo Kosai, the practice of it itself as a subject matter, has already appeared in um, some Japanese 
TV dramas. I, I think um, actress Kyoko Fukada from films like uh, Kamikaze Girls uh, has actually, she got her start in a TV drama about uh, a character and, and Joe Kosai. And it mm-hmm. made its way into Taiwan as a practice, and then it appeared in some Taiwan media, and, and now it's in Hong Kong. And it has, you know, had some headlines here. There, there are cases of these girls popping up in the news um, all the time. And two of the more famous cases are actually serving as subplots for the film here. Um, I think that those aspects of this film don't work very well. Um, and I, I can go a little bit, you started to touch on the, the incident with the killer in Hong Kong. There was a, a kid, you know, I, I think he was like 18 or 19, pretty young guy, um, who had basically called, contacted one of these girls through the internet, um, had her come over and they were drugged up, or at least he was drugged up and he ended up killing her. Didn't know what to do. He ended up hacking her up and separating out her body parts. Very gruesome. And trying to hide them around he flushed some of it down the toilet he took some to dumpsters and uh, i think when they caught him he was taking her head to the harbor to dump it or something and so they 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 caught him and you know it's just one of those real stories that you find very hard to believe and the way that it's used here though is is just as sort of this thing in the background that never really seems to get resolved uh, in the Mm -hmm. story it's just sort of left hanging. Now, the other subplot that's used here that's kind of stripped from the headlines is this issue. There's an issue with AIDS and a person putting out phone numbers on the Internet of all the people that this person slept with, and he has AIDS, and so now these people may have AIDS. Um, and that serves as sort of a big kind of uh-oh moment uh, later in the film. I think that those could have been executed uh, a, a lot better and, and could have had a a better role in what was going on here. The performances by the girls were great. I liked all the actresses. We've talked about Michelle Y before. Um, I've seen all her films so far except for X. Um, I haven't seen that one. And I think she's probably one of the most talented new actresses on the scene. Um, and I, I applaud her for choosing to take a role like this. Um, e- even though she's, you know, she, she wasn't contracted to do any nudity. Um, I think still think she pulled off her role very well, and the other other girls did as well. I'm not a huge fan of, you know, uh, nudity just for the sake of nudity to get a Category Three film, but I think what they're doing here was, you know, needed and necessary. Um, so I think the girls are in top form. The problem I have is that the characters are simply the same stereotypes, uh, the the same cookie cutter characters that you would find in Girls Without Tomorrow, or PR Girls. You've got the one character who's been in the business, and she's now out of the business. She serves as sort of a managerial role now for the for the newer girls. And, uh-oh, something's happening, and she may get sucked back into the business. Um, you've got the other girl who loves doing it. She, you know, she's really into it, and she, she, she loves being in it. Then you've got a girl who's you know, kind of just in it. She's not sure why she's in it. She doesn't need to be there, but she's there because it's exciting or it's something different. Um, And then you've got sort of the young neophyte who desperately needs the money, and this is sort of her only option, right? Um, And because they're using these same characters that we've seen before, 
for me that that part was a little bit disappointing i would have liked to have seen so you know these these characters develop a little bit differently um than as they're presented it was just a little bit too typical i think um the interesting thing is i like what they did with the english title the english title is called girls and what that stands for is each of the characters name um um the young girl is named gucci then you have icy ronnie and lynn and then um, a girl who, in the very opening scenes, is murdered by the killer, whose name is Silver. And then her name has two slashes through it to make a dollar sign. Also sort of inferring that she's the, she's the one of the group who got murdered. Um, so I think that was kind of an interesting play that they did with the title. I kind of like that touch. Um, with the nudity, there was way too much man butt, if I can <laughs> say that here. Um, it, it was like, I almost thought I was watching a scud film in some <laughs> points because there was so much man, but I mean, I know that they only contracted the one actress to do the nude scenes. So with the other actresses who weren't doing nude scenes, they were always doing these sort of close up shots of some stand-ins, butt, and I'm glad it wasn't yours. Um, <laughs> and you know, I think that it was, it was a bit unnecessary, um, to do that. You know, if the actress, actresses didn't want to do, do nude scenes, there's way to do scenes of intercourse without always showing nudity. And they, they did it at a couple scenes. It was just seemed way too much focus on these back shots all the time. Um, interestingly, there was one scene on a TV where uh, we could see Athena Chu for a few moments in her role in uh, Whispers and Moans. That was sort of caught on there. So uh, kind of tying the concept of Enjo Kosai back over to prostitution. And there's a whole long song uh, montage. And Kevin, maybe you can speak to this a little bit better than I can because um, my Cantonese, when it comes to pop songs, I have a very difficult time keeping up because the structure is somewhat different than Cantonese used for conversation. But as I understand it, this is coming from Sammy's Faith album where she's like finding um, Jesus and yeah, God, yeah. and yet it's this is album. yeah, this is the song that's being used as these girls are sort of uh, going around and cavorting and spending their ill-gotten gains in mm-hmm. a, a sort of a mass show of consumerism. Uh, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting choice. Um, yeah, he um, Kenneth he he spoke about that in, a, in an interview uh, in this month's Hong Kong Film Magazine and. He mentioned that this song is actually specifically chosen. It was a uh, first one of those editing experiments that his editing assistant did when they were cutting the montage. And then when he found out what the song's about, it's about you know, uh, sort of about love and and a belief in something. Not, specific, not they didn't say spe- there's no reference to God. I believe in the song, but um, yeah, he he specifically needed to use the song in the end when he realized what the song's about. He even had to pay. pay um, double copyright fees because there's a, there's a cover song so I has to pay both the Hong Kong and the Koreans the right to use the song so for him this using the song apparently is a very important thing um, I think I don't quite agree I don't know I just find it weird that a gospel song is a uses a in a film about prostitution you know I don't think Sammy would like that very much but um, you know at least, it's, at least it's nice to see a director who actually puts that much thought into uh, something that seems so small into a film yeah, and I think that that's the thing. That, I mean, as I said, the overall look of the film, it, it it's not really polished in terms of the cinemat- cinematography and some of those aspects. 
Um, you could tell they were working with a lower budget, but it's the little details, like the choice of the song and the way they work the title and the performance, the nuanced performances they get from these girls, even though the characters are, as I said, a little bit redundant. Um, they do give very good performances. Before we go on to our next film, you may hear quite a bit of uh, sound effects in the background. That is not a sound effects CD. It is actually raining like cats and dogs um, at Kevin's location, and there's a little bit of thunder going on at my location. I'm afraid I might lose power at some point. Um, mm -hmm. So we do apologize for the environmental effects, but we will try to push forward. All right, so our next film is the new film Frozen. Um... Now, I would try and explain this film, but I'm not sure I still understand it, so I'm going to throw it back at you, Kevin. <laughs> well, okay, I'm trying to review this from, um, for Love and Shade film, so I could, I could try and explain this. Frozen is the latest film, I guess the second attempt, uh, by Leon Lai's record company to sell its uh, biggest pop stars. Um, its first attempt was A Melody Looking back in 2006, uh, a direct-to-DVD film that starred uh, Leon uh, and, a, and a whole team of his pop stars, including Janice Vidal, the sister Jill Vidal, who is now retired from showbiz because of her her uh, substance abuse problem. Um, also, you had Charles Ying. I believe it was uh, Emily Wong, who never really got to make her record debut after the film and came out. wasn't Chapman Toe in that as well? Yes, Chapman Toe has an entire musical sequence where he sings on a crane in the middle of a church. That was uh, one of the highlights of the film, next to you know some truly, truly, truly dreadful English dialogue. So um, you can't really blame me for not looking forward to Frozen. Um, Frozen is the second attempt, as far as I know, uh, is to sell... Uh, Leon's array of pop stars with uh, using, uh, I guess, cinematic storytelling. And uh, you can't really blame me that um, <clears throat> Frozen brought me back flashbacks when I was watching it. This is uh, despite the fact that it's directed by Derek Kwok, who last made the, you know, pretty damn good uh, co-directed uh, Gallants um, and also previously directed The Moss and The Pie Dog. He's really one of uh, Hong Kong's most promising young directors so it's really sad for him to see him uh you know get into the film like this and you know you you can kind of tell that uh quack was kind of i guess restrained in a way as director um you know kind of like when wilson Yip made uh leaving you i mean loving me leaving you uh which was also uh involved quite a bit of uh uh, Leon, I think, because uh, he also produced the film. I think he, he came with the story of the film. He's quite heavily involved in it, and I wouldn't be surprised if he, he was also uh, pretty heavily involved in Frozen as well. Uh, Frozen is kind of like a sci-fi meets nostalgia film. Uh, it stars uh, Janice Vidal, who is, 
I believe who is with along with Leon the only two people who are from uh, a melody looking uh, who are still who is still around I guess in the entertainment industry and she here stars as a young girl who grew up in America who goes back to Hong Kong with her parent, with her father and her grandfather when uh, her father dies uh, he reveals that um that he, he's not her birth father and uh, also gave gives her a key to a lab in the basement uh, and there's a machine in the basement uh, that uh, houses uh, her dead mother her supposedly dead mother what happens is that uh, when um, wings who is a Genesis character's name wings mother when she, when she died uh, her father who was played by T Long decided to cryogenically freeze her uh, and let modern medicine uh, heal her and in a way it worked because uh, when when uh, wings opens the machine uh, her mother comes back to life uh, except uh, her mother even though she knows everything she still sports a really nice 80s haircut and uh, and is still talking about Leslie Jern who is her idol being alive and and uh, yeah essentially she's still living in the 80s so she goes out and decides to look for her boyfriend who is actually Wing's real father and in flashbacks they reveal that he was played by Arif, uh, Arif I forgot his last name Lee. Arif Lee there you go, thank you. Who was uh, last seen in uh, Echoes of the Rainbow? Here, she, in the flashback scenes, which takes place in the 80s, he plays her boyfriend. Um, so it kind of just goes back and forth between the present and the, and the past, uh, with uh, Monica finding um, uh, her boyfriend is still alive, played by a certain record company boss slash Heavenly King. And um, not much else happens, actually. <laughs> They they find each other and, and things happen. There's uh, some humor, I guess, and uh, there's some dancing. There's some uh, lots of dancing, and then there's uh, that certain record company boss slash Heavenly King singing the songs of Leslie Chun. Before I start listing out what is wrong with that, let's talk about the rest of the film. Um, I would prefer it without the sci-fi aspect. Actually, I really like. Well, I wouldn't say I really like, but I, I would say that I liked. The '80s part, I like the nostalgia. There's some really nice touches, you know. Talk about the the boy London watches and uh, the the way people looked, uh, the way things that people like. I guess parts of pop culture at the time. Um, I, I like that part. I think I think some of the seeds uh, is quite sweet, uh, even though it kind of lacks the plot to to build the entire film. But that's not that's that's, that's something that's easy to do. I mean. Um, you can build an entire plot about the 80s with uh, this nostalgia stuff and it will work. Arif and Janice Mann like, make a nice couple. Arif, I believe he's getting... He shows that he's a very good musician and also shows that he's a competent actor, I suppose. Janice Mann, uh, also who has a bit of acting experience, uh, definitely should not sing, doesn't sing, and I think does much, much better than the other Janice. Um, I think the love story between the two would have not only been good and also would have justified the nostalgia because right now with the nostalgia, with the Leslie Churn stuff, it just feels kind of empty. It just feels like it's there to, I guess, uh, attract a older audience uh, that would go watch an idol film. And it doesn't really have any point to it. Um, um Instead, you got this this whole modern part, you know, 
that kind of mixes sci-fi and love story and comedy all together at once and and none of these really work that well the actors um are terrible uh Janice Vidal please never act again you're as bad as you were in a melody looking um and uh, Wilfred Lau, who was great in Once a Gangster, uh, utterly wasted here in the Ronald Chang role, I guess, the comic relief. Uh, and that certain quote-unquote surprise uh, is actually Leon Lai in being half the movie. Um, and he does uh, plenty of things here that kind of makes me vomit in my mouth just mentioning it. Um, one of which is doing the Michael Jackson dance. Um, the best thing he does here is to not admit that he has anything to do with the film. Although you know that it's his record company's artist, you know that from the logo or the, the logos in the beginning of uh, Melody Looking, that's the same production company. Uh, also, Mia Asia, which is a parent company of A Music, you know that Leon Lai has lots to do with this. But of course, his wisest decision is to not put his name on it until the very end as a special appearance. Um, and that it's either destined to be a camp classic which would put put it right next to um uh melody looking and 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 uh other terrible pop star fodder as a in a in a marathon of of utter self-torment as people want to people for people who will want to sit through hours and hours of bad idol movies and it would be there it would sit perfectly there or it would be in one of those midnight showings where people can throw crap at it or to make fun of it um either way it, it joins a long list of bad contributions that leon lies had made to the hong kong entertainment circle um despite the things i liked about it uh again poor Derek kwok um He's always restrained, you know, by corporate agenda and, uh, you know, bad directing uh, or, you know, bad producing. And uh, I hope that, you know, I hope that he knows that the indie indie filmmaking world welcomes him back with open arms when he will make a good film again. Uh, unlike Wilson Yip, who has already turned down that role and never will return. Uh, so Frozen, not uh, not a very good film, I think. Yeah. Paul? Um I so wanted to like this film, you know, going into it. I, I had not, I have not seen the, I mean, I've seen p- parts of the, uh, a melody looking when it was, when it was being prom- promoted here in Hong Kong. And I just didn't really want anything to do with it, but I really wanted to like this film. I really like films that deal with, uh, nostalgia and particularly Hong Kong nostalgia, uh, more than anything else. And it just wasn't, it, it just wasn't in the cards, I guess, because um, it's just such a bad film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's really, really no other way around it. There was a great movie in here somewhere, um, but the filmmakers, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because a conflict of visions between, you know, Leon's company or Leon himself and the director, they just couldn't find it. But I know that mm-hmm. there was a good film in here somewhere. Um, and, and in part because it's, the film's got a great soundtrack. I mean, it's dealing with this, many of the top songs of Leslie, right? Um, and and I, I'm a big fan of Leslie. You know, I, I like a lot of his music, and, except for Leon, Leon's rendition of Monica, which is towards the end of the film. It's just terrible. He shouldn't, he shouldn't have sung that song because he can't sing it like the way that Leslie does it. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot in this film. So it was a sort of a teaching moment for me. Um, I learned that 
fancy high-tech cryogenic machines, for example, can be run with a MacBook Pro. I mean, <laughs> who knew? The computer that I'm sitting here using to bring you this podcast can run my own cryogenic machine if I so wanted to. Well, um, you know all the nerds use Apple now. Yeah, yeah. And so they cryogenically freeze their girlfriends. You know, yes. and uh, Janice Vidal can simply press a few buttons and get the machine to shut down. Um, it's just that easy. <laughs> now, th this film really tries to be like, there's a, you remember the Mel Gibson film back in the 90s called Forever Young? It's basically the, the same kind of an idea um, just a, a, an extended period of time. He was like a, you know, a, a pilot back in the 30s or the 40s or something, and he freezes himself and he wakes up in the modern day and, you know, deals with that. And it, it that tries, even though it's using silly science, it tries to take a serious approach to this idea. And I was wishing the filmmakers would have done that here. And it was apparent very early on that they were just going to throw that out of the window and make this sort of a comic book film. And that's what really didn't work for me. I really wanted this film to be about, you know, a person who had all these dreams and, and these ideas, you know, from this time period of Hong Kong, you know, the 70s and the 80s and growing up then. And waking up now and coming to terms with, you know, a lot of the loss that there has been. I mean, you know, um, the loss of people like Leslie, you know, Anita Moy. Uh, Roman Tam, who all passed away, um, you know, in, in the very er early part of the millennium, um, it, dealing with, you know, the idea of losing your dreams, losing th th this, this film had so much potential and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was very apparent it wasn't going to be about any of that. Y you, you didn't mention that you do have people of the caliber of like Dick Long and Alfred, Alfred Chung here. In, in roles that are kind of wasted. Um, I think they could have been utilized a whole lot better than they were. Uh, I did like I did like uh, Janice Mann, and I did like uh, Arif and, and the, the way their relationship played out. I would have liked to have seen more of that, in fact. Uh, I wish they would have spent more time in the past. And again, that's part, in part because I really like nostalgia films. Um, you know, I think of movies like the Tony Lung and Tony Lung film, uh, He Ain't Heavy, He's My Father, where he, like, travels back in time and sees his dad when he's younger. Um, but you also get this glimpse of, you know, an earlier time period in Hong Kong. And that's one of the reasons why I like getting, like, all these old 80s movies from the Legendary Collections or the Fortune Star Collections when they get re-released, because you get a chance to see, like, old you know, nostalgic Hong Kong, and I really like that. I just felt that they had a lot of opportunity here, and they just, um, they just kind of wasted it, which is a shame. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. All right, let's move on to our West Screen topics for this week. Um, just one little piece of news, and that is talking about Inception, finally getting released in China. Um, so Inception did really well. It's so far taken in, in its first five days. Um, 93 million renminbi, which comes out to about 13, just over almost 14 million uh, U.S., 
Uh, pretty good numbers. This is now the fourth largest opening of a foreign film at the Chinese box office, uh, falling behind Avatar, Transformers 2, and the original Transformers. Um, the article says that Inception was not widely predicted to be a hit in China since it opened after summer vacation in China when students had already returned to school. So what do you think, Kevin? Surprising news, or did you expect that this was going to be a biggie? Well, no. I mean, the the film has been building buzz for a while ever since it opened in uh, America, and uh, it's gotten some really, really good word of mouth. Uh, people in China seem to really enjoy this film, and um, actually, I wouldn't underestimate um, the way this film is going to perform. Uh, I know people don't expect it to to perform, nothing to to gross past three hundred million RMB uh, because of the upcoming big Chinese films, but. I think we got a good film, and you've got a big enough release, and you got enough buzz, and you got enough word of mouth. People are gonna return to it, no matter which other movies are playing. Um, that okay? Again, that depends on what the Chinese government is doing um, as protection for the, the local films. But I believe it's got some strong legs, and I'm really glad that a, a deserving film actually gets success in China. All right, it's time for our West Screen film for this week. And this is the U.S. production, I guess it's a U.S. co-production in some ways, of the film Shanghai. So, Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about Shanghai since I haven't had a chance to get out and see it yet? Yeah, I got, I got all the uh, plot descriptions today, it seems like. Um, so Shanghai is the first and might be the only film in these uh, much-touted Weinstein Asian Film Fund, which I believe the Weinstein, involved the Weinstein company investing uh, something like 150 million U.S. dollars to make these co-productions with Asian countries. Uh, I believe the next film was going to be um, Tarantino's remake of The Seven Samurai, so uh, I, for one, am thankful that this whole thing didn't work out. Shanghai is the first film, and it's kind of like a Casablanca in China sort of deal. Um, it takes place in uh, Shanghai, I believe, just before Japan declared uh, war on the United States. Uh, there, the presence already felt in China, but they haven't taken over Shanghai yet, so the city is, is separating these sectors. So we got kind of the third man meets Casablanca in China, uh, so it's just kind of an exotic version of the this, this, these war zones uh, or pre-war zones. Uh, so you can see that it's um, the idea of a, of a, a producer who who found a really interesting setting when you know he was reading a history book or something, and really wants to make a prestige movie for awards. So um, the fifty million dollar U.S. million dollar budget, you know, got the cast. Uh, it's got John Cusack, it's got Gong Li, Chowen Fat, Ken Watanabe. Um, <laughs> who else am I missing here? Um, Ringo Kikuchi. Um, you know, all these big Asian names who I'm sure would never say no to a Hollywood production and they show up and, you know, they do the job and they do it really and they do it, they deliver as, as best they can. But I promise you, got not a very engaging plot. Um, again, it seems like it, it was a plot written around an interesting setting. So you've got a, a murder mystery. Um, kind of like a, I think it's about a, a spy or kind of a pseudo spy who is killed one night in Shanghai. 
Um, and uh, another spy who is uh, posing as a reporter arrives in Shanghai and finds his friend has been killed. So he spends uh, the rest of the film looking into who killed his friend. Uh, and his list of suspects include a Japanese general who is played by Ken Watanabe and a local gangster played by Chun Fat uh, whose wife is played by Gong Li. Um, I admit that I fell asleep. Uh, parts of it because uh, it's it kind of uh, it's not a very engaging film. I mean, the, the, there's plenty of um, atmosphere. The filmmaking is technically is very nice. Uh, they built a very nice set. I'm not sure. I think they filmed in no, they couldn't film in China. That was the controversy. They were they start they were set to shoot in China. They had a set built and they were forced to move to Bangkok, I believe, because the Chinese government uh, decided to to uh, not let them shoot there. Um, and then they spent two years in post-production, and, it's, and it shows because it's got plenty of plot, but um, the whole thing isn't very engaging. Uh, it just feels like it's going through the motions. Um, there's, again, some very good technical stuff, but they feel like they were done in post-production rather than p- out of you know filmmaking craft. Um, with that cast and you got that, that setting, is a film that seems like it's destined to send to a film market. It sells as a package. Uh, as a as a pre sale deal, but um, it never really quite works out to be an engaging film to be a good film. Um, it's really the worst type of award bait, and really the, the Weinstein's and the Weinstein's are the worst offenders of this. They make these films that have prestige, but they never turn out to be very good films. Um, so I guess in the end, Shanghai is uh, interesting. Experiment, I, I believe you can just say as an experiment, but um, is it a really good film? I don't think so, but um, I think it's worth checking out if, you, if, if you're curious about what uh, a film with this cast and this kind of money, uh, how it can still churn out crap. Uh, well, I wouldn't say crap, but churn out something that's less than quality work. Uh, in that case, uh, I think it will satisfy certain curiosity, but is it a good film? No, I don't think so, and that's why it still hasn't opened in the States yet. Hmm, that's too bad. You know, as as you're talking about it, I'm sitting here thinking, wouldn't it have been a much better angle to take this as, you know, Hot Tub Time Machine 2, colon, Shanghai? You know, so what happens is John Cusack is in a hot tub in Shanghai and ends up going back in time to meet Chow Yun-Fat as Confucius, right? <laughs> and just, uh, you know, hilarity ensues. <laughs> you take two bad films... And one good film and mix them together to make a crazy film, right? <laughs> Confucius say, yeah, Confucius says, no, <laughs> Confucius say. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our episode for this week. Um, as always, you can find out what we're doing, what's going on with us over at our website at www.concast.com if you'd like to leave some comments there for us or some questions for us to discuss you're welcome to do so or you can always uh, post us over a short uh, mp3 audio file to the uh, email address over there and we'll play it here on the show if you'd like to keep up with us on what we're doing in our daily lives here in hong kong you can follow me on twitter i'm at twitter.com slash foxlore and you can come follow Mr. Ma at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. That is one word. And you can also keep up at Kevin with his various writings and reviews and his criticisms in various places. Kevin, where can they find you? 
Um, you can uh, well find me on Twitter, as uh, Paul mentioned. I also um, write a few things when I have time at uh, at my day job at yesasia.com. Uh, in the Yum Cha section, I write news items and um, certain editors' picks under the pen name Rockman. Uh, of course, there's also various anonymous pieces of writing, like descriptions and stuff that I write on the site as well. And also, of course, there's also the works of other very talented editors. So be sure to check those out as well. Yeah. And um, <coughs> if you do happen to get a chance to head over to the I Love Hong Kong film uh, website, where Mr. Ma occasionally updates his blog, um, you might want to drop in to one of the other bloggers over there, Sanjuro, who has recently posted that um, he's going to stop posting for a while because he's having some family issues with his father and i just like to say that um his work will be missed but we understand that he does have to take a short hiatus to deal with these issues and we wish his father and his whole family um good wishes here from all of us in hong kong uh, so until next time as always we will wish you good viewing and we'll see you then see you next time everybody So I, th I thought that she she gave an equally good performance. I'd be interested to see if she can find, uh, you know, equally interesting work in the future. Sorry, hang on. My mom's trying to bug in. I hear this rain coming down. Yeah, that's at your place. Yeah, yeah the, the thunder's really coming down. I'm not sure if it's going to reach your place soon, but anyway. Um, you know, and then you get the, the the silliness, you know, Leon doing his impersonation of Michael Jackson in Thriller. I mean, what else do you need to know? <laughs> <laughs>